ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the gun racks, Northern Desert Institute School of Farm Technology's official podcast. I'm Josiah Upper. Folks call me Joey. And with me, we have one Drew Poplin. Drew Poplin. And we have kind of a fun setup for you guys today where you're going to be in the capable hands of drew all thumbs poplin for the uh, majority of the day and we're going to be talking about the battle of guadalcanal actually and uh, before we do that i would like to give a quick shout out for a holiday yesterday yesterday was the national purple heart day uh, but i wanted to take a second today and uh, express appreciation for those who have made uh, sacrifices on the battlefield, August 7th is National Purple Heart Day. For those of you who are unaware, SDI is uh, prideful in supporting our veteran population while honoring the courage and sacrifices made by P- Purple Heart Medal recipients. Uh, that's actually straight from Walter Howard, who's the director of our military and veteran services. But of course, Drew and I feel exactly the same way. Uh, Sonoran Desert Institute actually is a designated Purple Heart school, which is, I'm sure there's other ones out there, but uh, that's the first time I had heard of that. So that's uh, pretty cool stuff. But of course, the focus is on all of our Purple Heart uh, earners out there. Um, it's it's pretty incredible stuff. So thank you all who have served. And uh, for those of you who have made that sacrifice while in service. On top of that, actually, we have another shout out. Uh, we have a couple uh, today. We have a couple in the middle of our uh, trivia, but one more before we get uh, further into things. The student veteran of the quarter, Michael Thornburg. We want to talk about him for a minute, and I kind of spoiled myself here. But uh, Michael Thornburg, who is a Marine Corps veteran, is the student veteran of the quarter for uh, Northern Desert Institute. So congratulations, Michael Thornburg. I'm going to read through his, we had an announcement and it's, it's pretty cool. So I thought I'd just work through it. So Thornburg was nominated by SDI's Director of Military and Veteran Services, who's actually the gentleman I just referred to earlier, for his peer mentorship and community uh, service and campus involvement. It was noted within the nomination that Michael has volunteered countless hours organizing a group of students to form an SDI student veteran group, which is awesome. Uh, furthermore, Thornburg, uh, Thornburg excuse me, also participates in SDI's monthly rucksack webinar, which aims to expand on SDI resources and address any military-connected student questions. Um, the nomination also encompasses his efforts on peer mentorship, stating that he actively solicits advice from SDI faculty and staff members to help students succeed in and out of the classroom. Uh, speaking with Michael Student Success, Coach, she recounted that from the very beginning, Michael has been committed to doing his best and continues to do so. He is one of those students who finds a way to make things happen at work, school, and home. It is true that he continues to maintain an excellent academic performance by achieving a GPA of 4.0 and being awarded to the SDI's Dean list in all completed semesters this fall, or all this far, excuse me, all while attending as a full-time student. It is clear that Michael's commitment to helping and supporting those from around him stemmed from, well, where it stemmed toward, excuse me, when he asked 
when he, he was asked about his military service and experiences and how they affected his life, he said that his service in the Marine Corps practically created who he is today. It taught him how to dig deep in the hardest of times. The Corps showed him how to overcome obstacles and exceed expectations. They taught him that anything is possible if you have the heart and drive. That's actually a direct quote. I just made the pronouns reflexive. I'll skip forward just a little bit in the announcement. If you want to read the whole thing, hop onto sdi.edu. It's under news. Um, and uh, it is live, so you can check it out anytime you like. But his final word of wisdom to other students, uh, students and service members who are looking to accomplish their goals, he said, my most extensive advice is to concentrate on the task and not so much on the overall picture. The writing can be is sometimes challenging, but much like military life, everything is okay as long as you make it to next chow. With that in mind, chow to chow, which is week to week, work hard early in the week and stress and the stress of the work will reside. Uh, reside. So um, that is uh, from Michael Thornburg. And once again, Michael, way to go. We are proud of you. Good job, dude. Yeah. So after many, many shameless self-plugs, begging even for our our responses to these trivia questions, which we do get, just not uh, generally in the email form that we ask for. We got one, um, and, and it's very exciting. We're very happy to have gotten that in. I'm trying to find his, oh, yes, his first name's Jonathan. I'll keep his last name out just for... Uh, just in case you didn't want it out there, which is yeah. all good. But uh, Jonathan, in case you're listening to this, we sent you an email asking for your address and shirt size so we can send you some goodies. Um, if you get that email or you listen to this episode, uh, reach out to us, marketing at sdi.edu or on that email thread. And uh, we're going to send you some fun stuff, including some cheer wine. So not an idle threat, the cheer wine sending. Um, in fact, we had one more uh, comment on our YouTube channel with the same answer. Drew's giving me weird squinty faces. Is that not the case? Oh, no, that that is the case. I'm okay. tired. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So YouTube guy whose who's full name I do not know. We it's appreciate it. Evan. Okay. Sweet. I don't want to give the last name, but sure, sure. Evan, okay. you know who you are. Evan and John, way to be. Evan, if you want to reach out to marketing at sdi.edu. Um, and send your your address and a shirt size. Maybe we'll send something your way too. We'd love to have that. So thank you guys both for participating. The root beer challenge has been completed to my utter shock, to be entirely honest with you. It's a little sad. It feels like a chapter's closing. It feels like a chapter's closing. And that chapter was uh, you guys responded to these trivia questions with utter silence. Um, so I don't hate it. We know out there that you love us secretly. <laughs> you, can, you can hide out all you want, but um, okay. So as we mentioned before, we're going to be going into uh, the battle for Guadalcanal now, and that's going to be piloted by uh, Drew here. But uh, before we do that, we want to talk to you a little bit more about the entity that you're talking with, right? Or listening to right now, Sonoran Desert Institute. So the gun rack is, of course, Sonoran Desert Institute School of Firearms Technologies podcast. Do you think that gunsmithing or firearms technology might be in your future? Gunsmithing is a highly technical field that requires a ton of specialized knowledge. But at SDI, we have the tools and education to help you get started. Discover your future in firearms by exploring the online gunsmithing programs we offer. 
And if you hop onto sdi.edu, you can check out all the good stuff we have going on. If you click on academics or even SDI's course catalog, uh, you can see some of the, uh, the, the learning objectives and uh, all, all of our good stuff that we offer here. And uh, we would love to have you come check us out and uh, maybe even become a part of the SDI family if you are not already. So thank you guys for uh, listening. And now we're going to kick into uh, the firearms trivia of the week. And then we're going to hop into the Guadalcanal story. Yes, sir. So um, as we mentioned, um, Jonathan and Evan both answered correctly. Uh, last week's answer was the Steyr AUG this week. I'm giving you three clues, and the last one should be a dead giveaway. So, clue number one. This is an anti-tank rocket launcher. Number two, it was designed by Edward Yule in 1942. And number three, and then this is the big one. Think about stale bubble gum. You think you know? Well, I hated that. You hated that? I did. Think about it. No, you think about it. <laughs> I thought plenty about it. I'm I'm at a loss. Uh, I'll have to whisper it the answer to Joey after we get off, right? But like this is really okay. Okay, this, well this maybe might it's be not the first as... one where I genuinely have no idea. So that's cool. Yeah, well maybe this is uh maybe it's not as easy as I thought, which is kind of a good thing. But if you think you know, please. Feel free to comment on the YouTube video or write in to marketing at sdi.edu. Heck yeah, guys. I don't know what we'll do if you get it correct. If someone writes in, we'll find uh, something. We'll, to we'll send find to you. something. And don't sleep on that cheer wine either. It's pretty tasty. Heck no. Um, so, yes, please send in your answers and let's get on to Guadalcanal. And interesting thing, um, you'll probably be listening to this on Monday the 8th. Yesterday was actually the 80th anniversary of the start of the Guadalcanal campaign. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, uh, 1942, August 7th. So it's it's kind of interesting how this all worked out with Purple Hearts Day, uh, us shouting out Michael Thornburg for student veteran. And we're talking about one of the most famous campaigns in all of the World War II Pacific theater. Yeah, man. Um, so I'm excited. Um, without further ado, let's go. Let's hop on in. Yeah. So before I begin, I want to give a quick shout out to some of my chief sources. As far as books go, the two main ones I consulted were Turning Points of World War II, Midway and Guadalcanal by Tom McGowan, as well as the Guadalcanal Diaries, which unfortunately I was not able to dig into as much as I would have liked to, but it was highly recommended. I also listened to a couple podcasts, the first of which is Key Battles of American History. They had a four-part series on Guadalcanal, which was really, really helpful, as well as Cauldron, a military history podcast. It's very engrossing, and the way he speaks is almost almost poetical. So just want to kind of give a quick shout out to those main sources. Some interesting narratives to keep an eye on as we go into Guadalcanal. The first one being the idea of the invincible and superior Japanese 
force versus the backwards Americans. And by that, I mean, at Midway, the U.S. Navy proved it could at least hang with Japan's Navy. But for most of the men on the ground, they had yet to test their mettle against a foe who had thus far breezed through every obstacle in their way. Another narrative to keep your eye out for is the idea of which event in the Pacific Theater was considered the turning point in the war. If it wasn't Guadalcanal, then what does Guadalcanal represent? And thirdly, I'm going to be drawing attention to some unsung heroes, namely the Cactus Air Force, the Seabees, and Coast Watchers. So let's dig into some of the background going into Guadalcanal. The Pacific Ocean is made up of a bunch of islands of varying sizes. During the late 19th and early 20th century, powerful nations would set up bases on these islands, and by 1930 they knew that if war was to break out in the Pacific, it would be a war of bases. On December 7th, 1941, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, it was absolutely devastating to the U.S. Three battleships had been sunk, another battleship was turned over, and four others were badly damaged. Three cruisers and three destroyers were damaged, 260 planes were destroyed, and 3,000 men died. However, there is a silver lining. It was that the fleet's three aircraft carriers were not present during the attack, so they were spared, and they would prove vital in the conflicts that would come. So if war happened to break out in the Pacific theater, the U.S. had an original plan that involved a large force that would be mainly on the offensive. However, Pearl Harbor altered these plans. Their now small force had to start mainly on the defensive. Meanwhile, Japan's plan was to cripple the U.S. naval force as much as it could, seeing as it was the only threat powerful enough to stop them in the Pacific theater, seeing as Britain had their hands full with other things during this time, namely in the Atlantic. So that was part one of their plan. Part two involved capturing oil fields in Malaysia, which was a British property at the time, and in the East Indies, which was owned by the Dutch. They would also form a defensive ring around their conquest by capturing other island bases. And on December 10th, which was three days after Pearl Harbor, Japan would put this plan into action, and they would do so flawlessly. They captured bases and sink battleships. By the end of the day, the Allies had no battleships in the Pacific, while Japan had 11. Speaking of 11, the next day, December 11th, Germany and Italy had declared war on the U.S. as well. Things didn't get better for the United States. By the beginning parts of the new year, the Allies lost Wake Island, Hong Kong was captured, New Britain was invaded, and Rabul, an important port, was seized by the Japanese. Rabul would now become Japan's main naval and air base in the Southwest Pacific. By March, they had also moved into modern-day Indonesia. They took over thousands of islands, both big and small, between Australia and South Asia. And this gave Japan much-needed oil. Oh, and they also took over Singapore and had the Americans on their heels in the Philippines. And despite a few tiny successes here and there, things were looking grim for the Allied forces. Things were so shaky that folks on the west coast of the United States actually started fearing that a Japanese invasion was possible. However, the Japanese leadership never really had a plan for invading the United States. Their strategy was to demoralize the U.S. early on into essentially giving up on the war in the Pacific. They felt that if war had lasted more than two years, their chances of winning would diminish as time would go on. 
because of the might of United States industry. Their plan was working, but the Japanese had not been as satisfied as you might have thought. See, the U.S. force still had some signs of life, so Japan needed to deal a death blow. Admiral Yamamoto reckoned that if he could get the remaining American forces all in one place, the Japanese force could overwhelm them. But with such a trap being fairly obvious, he had to force their hand by overwhelming them. He had to force their hand by capturing something so valuable to the U.S. that they would be forced to try and recapture it. And this led into the Battle of Midway, which, long story short, Midway was an absolute miraculous victory at the time by the Americans. After Midway, there was a noticeable momentum shift in the Pacific. So far, it had been Japan that was on the offensive, and the Allies were scrambling to defend. It was even said that many of Japan's top officials realized that this could be the beginning of the end of their campaign. The might of U.S. industry was one that could not be matched by the Japanese. Meanwhile, the Allies started to make plans to start their offensive. So where would they start? Well, the Solomon Islands seemed like a prime candidate, but why there? Well, there was three reasons for this. The first was that the Japanese, who had captured that territory in the area, were certainly going to use it as a base for further attacks. Because the Solomon Islands lie just east of Papua New Guinea, and Papua New Guinea is just above Australia, albeit when you look at a map of the Pacific, it doesn't give a great idea as to the scope of distance between the Solomon Islands and Australia. However, if the Japanese had control over this area, they could cause havoc for the Allied forces that were traveling to and from Australia. By the same token, if it was an Allied control, it could be a launching pad for offensive strikes against the Japanese, in particular the Japanese base in Rabul, which actually lies in between Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. And the third reason was that so far the Solomon Islands didn't have a heavy force of Japanese soldiers in it. Now initially the plan, which was to take place August 1st, 1942, was to focus on invading Florida Islands, Gavutu, Tulagi, and Tanambogo. However, less than a month before the attack was to commence, they made a discovery. Reports came in from Martin Clemens, who was an Allied coast watcher, that there was a Japanese force constructing an airfield on the island of Guadalcanal. Once again, I should note that a strategically placed airfield was a dangerous thing. Clearly, the Allies would need to capture this airfield, and whoever had control of the airfield, for all intents and purposes, would have control of Guadalcanal itself. Overseeing the invasion of these five islands on the ground was Marine Corps Major General Alexander Vandergrift. If you know nothing of him yet, you'll probably love him by the end of this episode. He would be commanding around 19,000 men, made up of the 1st U.S. Marine Division, the 1st Marine Parachute Battalion, and the 1st Marine Raider Battalion. Now, you may be asking, who are the Raiders? Well, according to usmcu.edu, it was the Marine Special Ops Force, and was led by Lieutenant Colonel Edson. Typically, they had three tasks. One, spearhead larger amphibious landings on beaches thought to be inaccessible. Two, conduct raids requiring surprise and high speed. And three, operate as guerrilla units for lengthy periods behind enemy lines. Edson, an incredible soldier in his own right, despite being 64 at the time, had trained these men to be an efficient and effective fighting force. 
Now, for the most part, the Marines that were going to the Solomon Islands had little to no fighting experience. However, the officers at least had some, though not much at all was known about the islands themselves. Again, maps, especially of this particular area, were not especially reliable. So what about Guadalcanal itself? Well, to me, Guadalcanal looks a little bit like the state of Tennessee. In between its coastline and mountainous areas were thick, muggy rainforests and swamps. It was the perfect breeding ground for wild animals and disease, in particular malaria. Also in command was Vice Admiral Fletcher, who was overseeing the carriers as well as the cruisers and destroyers that protected them. Rear Admiral Turner in charge of cargo and transport ships and the vessels protecting them. Most in charge estimated Japanese force of maybe 4,500 to 6,500 on all the Solomon Islands. So there wasn't much concern that the new soldiers would have to face a lot of resistance with the invasion. With all of that out of the way, the invasion was now set for August 7th, which is fitting considering was exactly eight months removed from Pearl Harbor. So now to kind of cover the initial invasion, I've split this up between the different islands. So we'll start with Florida Island. They landed at 7.40 a.m. and encountered almost no resistance. The islands of Tulagi, Gavutu, and Tanambogo, however, that was a different story. In fact, most of the heavy fighting that was happening during the invasion actually happened on these three islands. On Tulagi, they were able to eliminate the threat by the evening of August 8th. Only three Japanese soldiers had surrendered. Most were killed and only a few escaped. On Kavutu, which took place at noon, it was actually carried out by the parachute battalion, but they surprisingly made an amphibious assault. They ran into stiff resistance, but with naval bombardment help, they gained control over most of the island by that afternoon. And on Tanambogo was maybe the most initial stiff resistance. They needed lots of help taking control of the island, but ultimately they were successful. So now we get to Guadalcanal. Waves upon waves of soldiers would land on Guadalcanal. And apparently the second wave was getting ready for fierce resistance from the very moment the landing crafts opened. Sort of like what you'd expect when you see the scene from Saving Private Ryan. But when they stormed the beach, they found the first wave of Marines actually just waiting and chuckling at their stunned faces. As more waves of troops were still making their landing, the first units started moving towards the Lunga River. It was hot and humid and wet, a feeling they would soon become well acquainted with. Come nightfall, the Marines were anxious. They still hadn't encountered any resistance. Were they fooled? Were they, were they being watched? Well, in the morning, they eventually reached the airfield, once again expecting resistance but finding none. In fact, the airfield was abandoned. The Japanese force at the airfield had retreated to the safety of the woods. However, these were not troops. Rather, they were only building crews, so it makes more sense. But they left behind lots of supplies and food, including rice. Now, the rice was in most cases, kind of wormy at this point, and although initially mocked by the Marines, it would end up becoming vitally important. The airfield which they captured, they renamed Henderson Airfield, which was named after Marine Corps Major Lofton Henderson, 
who was one of the first men who was killed during the Battle of Midway. Regardless, the whole landing seemed to go relatively smoothly. They quickly captured their five island objectives. However, the rejoicing would not last long. If any of the Americans believed that a victory at Guadalcanal would be easy, they were going to be in for a rude awakening. And that rude awakening would occur at the Battle of Savo Island. Now, Admiral Fletcher had been given orders that were contradictory. His carriers were instructed to help during the campaign, but were also told not to lose any of them, as they were of vital importance and were currently scarce. So Fletcher, during the invasion, was antsy. He had already lost 21 of 99 planes, so once the landings were finished, he immediately began to pull his force out of the sound. Admiral Turner, who actually voiced his displeasure, in fact, he called this act abandonment, but Admiral Turner, who was in charge of transports, also wanted to leave with Fletcher, but he told Vandergrift that they would unload throughout the night so the Marines would have their much-needed supplies. However, he was having to do this without the protection of Fletcher. Unfortunately, because Turner was in such a rush to leave, most of the food and ammo that was supposed to help the Marines survive didn't make it. If the Marines felt abandoned now, they would learn how alone they truly were. On the night of the 8th, Real Admiral Crutchley's force of 8 cruisers, 15 destroyers, and 5 minesweepers were off the coast of Savo Island. Now, Savo Island lies in the middle of the Sound, around the western tip of Guadalcanal and the Florida Island Group. Now, Crutchley's job was to protect Turner's transports. That evening, he divided his force into three groups. Now, there was a northern group and a southern group, each having three heavy cruisers and two destroyers. Amongst these were also Australian ships. The third group was a group of destroyers that was scattered around to detect Japanese forces. So after dividing up the forces, Crutchley, who was currently on the HMAS Australia, which was the lead ship in the southern group, he actually left to attend a meeting that was called by Turner on his command ship. So before he left, he placed USS Chicago Captain Howard Bow in charge of this southern group. He did not inform the other commanders of this temporary change in command, nor did he notify them that the HMAS Australia wasn't going to be present at all. So when a sleeping bow received word that he was under temporary control, what did he do? He went back to sleep. This was one of many, many costly mistakes that were made this night. Meanwhile, the Japanese were on the move. Under the command of Vice Admiral Mikawa, they were able to stealthily penetrate the Allied defense with their seven cruisers and one destroyer. To keep all this short, the sound that would become known as the Iron Bottom Sound would play host to the Japanese issuing an unequivocal beatdown to the Allied Navy. It was the single worst defeat suffered by the United States Navy. All in all, the Japanese had three cruisers that suffered minor damage and less than 60 men dead. The Allies, on the other hand, had three cruisers sunk, one cruiser badly damaged, one cruiser was scuttled, and two destroyers damaged. After the blunder at Savo Island, there was actually a formal investigation that was conducted into how this disaster could have occurred. The chief causes were found to be failure to report the enemy, general lack of preparedness, fire safety flaws, and a lack of bravery. 
While most in command didn't receive formal punishment, there was a massive overhaul in operation conduct that was carried out by the naval commander-in-chief, Ernest King. But these sweeping changes to protocol and training that were installed by King would go on to make the U.S. Navy ultimately a stronger force. See, the U.S. and the Allies in general, they were really good about using their losses to improve themselves and to become better. The other positive that could be taken out of this was that the Japanese commander, Vice Admiral Mikawa, elected not to go for the finishing blow. He was wary of continuing the attack as the morning approached. Still, because of the heavy losses of an already crippled navy, the marines stuck on the islands, including Vandergrift, were left to fend for themselves. This meant they would be facing naval bombardments, Japanese air attacks, and the Japanese ground troops themselves. So Vandergrift set up defensive lines, and the 11,000 marines went to work digging in for the long haul. However, the good news was that they still had the airfield, and as long as they maintained control of Henderson, they could still carry out some form of aerial defense. This aerial defense would be known as the Cactus Air Force, or the CAF. The Cactus Air Force was a mix of U.S. Navy and Marine fighters and bombers, as well as heavy U.S. Army Air Force Boeing B-17 bombers. Frequently outnumbered, they excelled at working with little to still maintain some semblance of a defense. Even if they had their plane shot down, because of the Coast Watchers and the relatively friendly natives, they were able to, more often than not, fight another day. The only problem was that in the early days, the airfield was still not operational. The Japanese had never finished their work on the airfield. They had to get this airfield up and running if they stood any chance of holding out on the island. This is where the Seabees make their impact. The Seabees were a unit of men who essentially served as the construction force for the military. They worked tirelessly through the day to get the airfield operational. And eventually they were able to get it up and running. So now the Marines at least had some semblance of an air defense. It's here we're going to skip ahead to around August 21st. Now, the Japanese wanted the islands back, obviously, with Guadalcanal and the airfield being of particular importance. In charge of retaking the islands was Lieutenant General Hayukataki. Initially, he was given a tall order, as available units at this time were slim. The units he had to work with, he had the 35th Infantry under Major General Kawaguchi, the 4th Infantry Regiment, and the 28th Ichiki Infantry Regiment, under the command of Colonel Ichiki. It was this regiment that arrived to Guadalcanal first. Now, the Japanese had a bit of a superiority complex, to put it mildly. As mentioned, they tore through any resistance they faced thus far. They felt unbeatable. However, it was this arrogance that would serve as their downfall time and time again in the Pacific Theater. Now, for a, we have a good example here, Colonel Ichiki. Um, Ichiki was quite prideful of his own regiment. Uh, he was also dismissive about the strength of the Allies, so he severely underestimated the numbers and the fight of the American defense. 
between August 18th and 20th, his split-up regiment would arrive at Taivu Point, which was about 22 miles east of Lunga Point, where the Marines were at. With the bulk of his force yet to arrive, Achiki decided to move towards Lunga Point anyway. However, he had been spotted, not by the Marines themselves, but by Coast Watchers. Do you remember the name I mentioned earlier? Martin Clemens? Well, Martin Clemens and his system of Coast Watchers played a vital unsung role in reconnaissance and intelligence for the Allies. To use a metaphor, they were essentially the men who lit the beacons between Gondor and Rohan. So soon the Allies realized an attack would be coming from the east, so they dug in and prepared for the attack. At 1.30 a.m., the Imperial Army attacked in their famous bonsai charge. The first wave of 100 soldiers gave these Marines their first real taste of combat and how determined their enemy would be. An hour later, around 200 infantry attacked but were wiped out. Undeterred, a third wave was sent around 5 a.m. This went about as well for the Japanese as the previous ones. The Japanese were exhausted. This led the Allies to launch a counter-offensive, pinching in the Japanese force. Eventually, the rest of Ichiki's men ended up in a coconut grove, where the Allied tanks and air attacks would do the rest. In short, it was absolute annihilation. All told, the Allies lost around 40 of 3,000 men. The Japanese had one man surrender, an estimated 15 captured, and the rest were killed. Colonel Cheeky himself either died in the battle or committed seppuku. However, the Japanese that were wounded, refusing the dishonor of surrendering or receiving medical attention, would surprise the Americans who were looking for casualties with either pistols or concealed grenades. Essentially, the Americans would go be looking for casualties and they would find an injured Japanese soldier, and that when they would go to pick him up to help them, the soldier would either use a pistol or a concealed grenade on the Marines, and this caused multiple deaths and injuries. And this would ultimately change the American stance on taking Japanese prisoners, who would now instead bayonet every single Japanese soldier that you would find alive or at least seemingly dead. This victory was a huge psychological victory for the Allies. Before, in many of their eyes, the Japanese infantry were this unbeatable foe. However, victory at the Battle of Tenaru gave Allies soldiers confidence that their enemy, though incredibly fierce, was still only human. On the other hand, the Japanese learned very little from their loss at Tenaru, or otherwise known as Alligator Creek. A few days later, the rest of the Japanese force that was making its way to the islands was arriving. These forces were commanded by Rear Admiral Tanaka. He was followed by Vice Admiral Nugumo, as well as Rear Admiral Abe and Vice Admiral Kondo. They launched Operation Ka, which sought to destroy the three U.S. carriers that remained, and with those out of the way, an attack on Guadalcanal would become a lot more feasible. A lot of the naval battles that happened during this whole campaign. They were a result of both sides trying to continually get reinforcements and supplies onto the islands. So going into this battle, a battle which would be 
known as the Battle of the Eastern Solomons, the Japanese on paper had a stronger naval presence. However, the Japanese would also tend to divide their forces up into smaller groups to cover more area. This would be the same case here, as the force was divided into three groups of two heavy surface groups and a fleet carrier group. There was also a transport group that was waiting behind the other three to come onto the island. Within the fleet carrier group, there were two prized Japanese carriers, Shukaku and Zoikaku. The rest of the force included seaplane carrier Chitozi, battleship Mutsu, cruisers Kirishima and Hai. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, I'm so sorry. 12 heavy cruisers, 3 light cruisers, and 30 destroyers, and they also had aerial support coming from Raw Bull if needed. The U.S., on the other hand, had three carriers. They were the USS Saratoga, the USS Wasp, and the USS Enterprise. Though, in reality, there would typically only be two present at one time. Uh, they rotated, rotated patrol time so one of the carriers could refuel. They were protected by only one battleship, uh, which has a very soft place in my heart, being from North Carolina. It was the USS North Carolina. So they had, they had the Carolina, they had five heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and 18 destroyers. The Americans also split their force into three. And by the time of the battle, the group that was headed by the carrier Wasp had actually been pulled out of the area to refuel. So essentially there were two groups. Around 9.35 a.m. on August 24, things kicked off with the Japanese light carrier Ryujo and their group making their way towards Henderson Airfield. The purpose was to launch an aerial attack on Henderson while also hopefully drawing Allied attention. But Admiral Fletcher, to his credit, was skeptical of this. He felt that this was too good to be true. Eventually, at 1.40 p.m., he decides to only send half of Saratoga's planes to take on Ryujo, while keeping the other half of Saratoga's planes and all of Enterprise's back. Meanwhile, Ryujo's aerial attack on Henderson Field was thwarted. In fact, the Ryujo would not last much longer, as it was sunk later that day. But soon, U.S. carriers were spotted by the Japanese, unbeknownst to the Americans. But... Luckily for them, the USS North Carolina actually was installed with a state-of-the-art radar system. See, before, uh, radar had been not super reliable. It was still in its primitive stages. However, having the North Carolina out there with its updated and new and improved radar system uh, was a huge help. So it was actually able to detect the Japanese presence before they were right on top of the fleet, which gave precious moments for the Allies to prepare for an attack. When the Japanese planes arrived, they managed to inflict damage to the Enterprise. However, thanks to a wonderful group effort, 30% of the Japanese planes that attacked were shot down. After this narrow escape, the American naval groups needed to get out of danger, knowing that the Japanese would most likely launch a massive night surface attack and that they were unable to do much to stop it. That night, five destroyers started attacking Henderson Field with shells. The troop transports start making their way to Guadalcanal, but the Cactus Air Force, once again, was able to bat them away. So 
while maybe on paper, and this will become a common refrain during this campaign, on paper, the Japanese won a tactical victory, but it was the Americans who kept winning these strategic victories. See, the Japanese, their whole goal was to be able to land troops and supplies onto Guadalcanal, but because of the CAF, they weren't, uh, they weren't able to. Real quick, I can't go into this much at all. Uh, frankly, I don't know enough about it right now to really comment on it, but I did want to make a mention of the Battle of Milne Bay, which lasted from August 25th to September 7th. It didn't involve many American troops. Uh, it saw a mainly Australian force defeat the Japanese decisively in a land battle. It's not often talked about, but it was worth noting, as I'm sure many of our Australian listeners would at least appreciate a mention of their heroic deeds. So now we go into September. Let's fast forward a couple weeks, and the Americans on Guadalcanal at this time were weary. Nightly naval bombardments and the lack of resources made life miserable. In fact, the Marines were down to two meals a day, and they had been for some time. By the same token, the Japanese were successful in landing reinforcements throughout late August and early September. They shifted strategy in terms of getting troops onto the island. Not wanting to risk Allied strikes against their transports during the day, the Japanese elected to use destroyers that would make nighttime runs as transports. Dubbed the Tokyo Express by the Allies, this was a strategy that, while somewhat successful, especially early on, it would leave them mainly without much-needed heavy equipment. Still, in its chief mission of getting soldiers on the island, it was successful, at least initially. Which is also a good time to mention that what ended up occurring during this campaign was interesting, as naval presence around Guadalcanal was literally night and day. During the day, the Americans actually had more of an advantage. However, during the nights, the Japanese who had prepared and practiced for nighttime naval combat were vastly superior at this time. So the Japanese with the Tokyo Express were able to get soldiers onto Guadalcanal. Among them was the commander of the ground forces during the Guadalcanal com campaign, Major General Kawaguchi. You may remember him being mentioned before. It was now that the battle shifted back to land. Kawaguchi was able to assemble around 5,200 troops at Taivu Point and 1,000 troops west of the Longa perimeter. With his force, Kawaguchi felt confident that his men would be able to recapture the airfield, as he believed the U.S. only had 2,000 Marines on the island. In reality, of course, the number of Marines on Guadalcanal was much higher than that. Knowing that a ground attack was imminent, Vandergriff made the decision to pull three battalions to the island. Among these were the 1st Parachute Battalion, who lost many, many, many soldiers during the initial invasions. They were actually brought into Edson's 1st Raider Battalion, who was also pulled back to Guadalcanal. I had made mention of these battalions towards the beginning of the episode, but with these extra men, Vandergriff had a force of about 
12,500 men, a lot more than the 2,000 that Kawaguchi thought they had. Now, Kawaguchi, meanwhile, split his men up into three forces. Two smaller forces would attack from the east and from the west of Henderson, while the main force of 3,000 troops would attack from the south. Remember, Guadalcanal's geography consists of its center being mainly mountainous terrains. So Edson and Colonel Gerald Thomas, they suspected that if the Japanese were to attack, that the main attack would be coming from the south. Specifically, they believed that the Japanese attack would come at Lunga Ridge, which was just south of Henderson Field. Vandergriff actually disagreed, and he believed that the attacks if they came, would be along the coast. After all, this is what was happening before. Eventually, Thomas was able to convince Vandergriff that the ridge was a good location. However, he didn't necessarily convince Vandergriff that that's where the main force would be attacking. However, he did convince him that this ridge was a good location for the raiders to quote-unquote rest from their actions of the preceding month. So on September 11th, the 840 men of Edson's unit deployed onto and around the ridge, and they got ready to defend. Now initially, Kawaguchi wanted his three groups in position by 2 p.m. on the 12th. However, due to a mix of factors, they weren't able to get everyone in position until 10 p.m. That first night of battle saw most of the conflict happen near the ridge, just as you know, Edson had predicted. Due to the dark jungle, attacking as a joint force proved difficult for the Japanese. Just before 6 a.m., Kawaguchi decided to pull his forces back to reorganize, but they would be making another attack later that evening. It, the Marines, again, were, were so exhausted. They, they actually had a hard time getting to the ridge itself because they were so weary and worn out. Um, and... At this time, they were honestly demoralized. Again, the common sentiment among the Marines was that they were being abandoned by the Navy. However, this is when Edson really stepped up, and I have to say, it was quite literally he stood up. So before nightfall, Edson, he sees this grenade box, and he goes and he stands up on it, and he says this. Human have done a great job. And I have just one more thing to ask of you. Hold out just one more night. I know we've been without sleep a long time, but we expect another attack from them tonight, and they may come through here. I have every reason to believe that we will have reliefs here for all of us in the morning. And that speech, and just Edson in general, was actually credited by many of the Marines for keeping them together and organized and inspired and they would need this as at the start of this battle the americans were outnumbered roughly three to one there was three thousand japanese versus 830 marines so that night wave after wave of japanese troops battered into the american defense forcing the americans to continuously fall back they fell back until they eventually reached the command post and they were scared, you know, they were being pushed back, it, things were not looking good. And that's when Edson, with some of his officers, they emerged from the command post, 
and they yelled at the men to keep fighting. And the battle raged throughout the night with everything from machine guns, artillery, and the men who at multiple points had to resort to fighting hand-to-hand. And all this served as the evening's orchestra. It was a, a symphony of death. As the morning approached, U.S. aerial attacks were finally able to make bombing runs against the Japanese infantry. And ultimately, Kawaguchi was forced to pull back. To quote historian Richard B. Frank, he said, The Japanese never came closer to victory on the island itself than in September 1942, on a ridge thrusting up from the jungle just south of the critical airfield, best known ever after as Bloody Ridge. It may have been known by one name as Bloody Ridge, but to the Marines, it was known as Edson's Ridge. Edson would actually go on to later receive the Medal of Honor for his courageous leadership here. However, two days later, the Japanese would strike a huge blow to the Americans. As I've mentioned many times, supplies, food, reinforcements, men were scarce for the Marines on Guadalcanal. So they needed to feed more men and more supplies and more food. And what happened was the carrier's Wasp and Hornet, together with the battleship North Carolina, got to represent, sorry, I'm not going to, I can't get over it. I, I got to show some hype to North Carolina, even though it has really nothing to do with North Carolina apart from the name. Anyway, carriers Wasp and Hornet, together with battleship North Carolina and 10 other warships, were escorting transports that were carrying the 7th Marine Regiment to Guadalcanal. It was going to be vital. It was going to be so nice to have some more men on the island. Um, But they were spotted by a Japanese submarine, I-19. I-19 fired six torpedoes. One of them caused damage to the destroyer O'Brien. One missed pretty much everything completely. One of them hit the North Carolina, which was damaged slightly, but could still fight temporarily. And the other three all hit the USS Wasp and eventually the Wasp had to be scuttled. The U.S. had just lost another carrier. Despite how devastating it was to lose an aircraft carrier, they could take comfort in knowing that ultimately it fulfilled its mission as the 7th Marine Regiment that was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Chesty Pooler arrived safely to Guadalcanal three days later. However, the Tokyo Express was always operating. By now on the island, there are around 27,000 Americans, and Japan had 30,000. The Japanese had a bit of a Tokyo Express staging area that was five miles from Lunga Point. At At Mantanakal River, obviously having the Japanese so close was a cause of concern to Vandegrift, so he decided it was time for the Americans to attack. He ordered the newly arrived Chesty Pooler to wipe out the Japanese forces around the river. What resulted was a series of small but costly engagements. In particular, October saw some of the most vicious of these encounters. At this time, I want to share a particular story of heroism. And this is about the United States Coast Guard's only Medal of Honor recipient. A man who is the only non-Marine to be enshrined on the Wall of Heroes at the National Museum of the Marine Corps. And that is Signalman First Class Douglas Monroe. And I'll quote this USO article directly for the story. 
Monroe and others were responsible for navigating landing craft full of marines along the coast of Guadalcanal, one of the Solomon Islands in, south, in the South Pacific. A month into the Guadalcanal campaign, then-Marine Lieutenant Colonel Chesky Pooler embarked three companies of U.S. Marines into landing craft to take control of the western region of the island. Monroe, who's only 22 years old, took control of 10 landing craft to move Pooler's men to the western coast. After successfully landing and moving 500 yards inland, Monroe took all but one of the landing craft and returned to the staging area. Just an hour after landing on the western coast of the island, Marine forces were overcome by Japanese bombing raids, driving out their gunfire support. The Marines were being driven back to the beach, and many did not have radios to request assistance. A single help spelled out on t-shirts on the ridge near the beach sent a loud and clear message to those looking on. Back at the staging area, Monroe volunteered to navigate the same landing craft to rescue the Marines from enemy fire. Nearing the beach and braving incoming fire, Monroe directed the landing craft to push forward, even with Japanese forces gaining ground and nearing the beach. As the Marines re-embarked on the landing craft, Monroe immediately navigated his vessel between the enemy's fire and the Marine forces, providing much-needed cover for the Marines. With his efforts, all of the Marines, including the wounded, were safely taken off the island. Monroe later helped free a grounded landing craft that was full of marines who were not far from enemy forces. At the same time, the Japanese forces began firing machine gun rounds, and Monroe was struck with a single bullet. He died before the forces returned to the staging area. In a letter dated just five days later, the commanding officer of the unit wrote to inform Monroe's parents of their son's heroism and death. Quote, Upon regaining consciousness, his only question was, did they get off? And so died with a smile on his face and the full knowledge they had successfully accomplished a dangerous mission. And that was just one of the many stories of heroism that I really wanted to share with y'all. In particular because, you know, you don't often get to hear about the Coast Guard, who, if I'm not mistaken, they celebrated their birthday a couple days ago. Uh, so once again, happy birthday to the Coast Guard and thank you so much for your service and your sacrifice. The month of October saw some particularly intense conflicts. Mid-October was also described as one of the bleakest moments in the entire campaign. But there were many interesting things that unfortunately due to time I can only highlight. Uh, the first one being the Battle of Cape Esperance, which occurred October 11th through 12th. It saw the American Navy finally win a night battle, though the Japanese were still able to land reinforcements. So in, in a weird way, it was almost a reverse of what was typical, you know, sort of that refrain of an American strategic victory, but a tactical loss. It was almost like it was reversed. On the evening of October 13th, there was an extremely intense Japanese bombardment directed at Henderson Field, which heavily damaged the airfield's two runways while also burning down almost all the available aviation fluid. And that's not all. They were also able to destroy 48 of the CAF's 90 aircraft that killed 41 men, including six Cactus Air Force air crew. But, once again, the Cactus Air Force and the Seabees would go to prove their importance. Soon... The airfield was back to being operational. The Japanese would conduct a similar operation on the 18th. However, this one served as a diversion. 
The Americans hadn't realized that the Japanese were planning another ground attack from the south. Luckily, the dense jungle had slowed the Japanese advance, which brings us to the battle for Henderson Field, which started the on the evening of the 24th. Again, they were slowed down very, very heavily. By the morning, the perimeter defense held and 300 Japanese were dead. Later that day, the CAF got into a massive dogfight, assigned to the Americans that the previous night was just a preamble to a much larger ground attack. They were very, very correct in that assumption. Now, to illustrate how intense the combat was, now would be a great time to mention John Bassalone, which, John Bassalone, that's probably a name that many of you are familiar with. Uh, but just in case many of you are not, I'm going to read his Medal of Honor citation. For extraordinary heroism and conspicuous gallantry in action against enemy Japanese forces above and beyond the call of duty, while serving with the 1st Battalion, 7th Marine, 1st Marine Division, in the Lunga area, Guadalcanal, Solomon Islands, on 24th and 25th October 1942. While the enemy was hammering at the Marines' defensive positions, Sergeant Bassett alone, in charge of two sections of heavy machine guns, fought valiantly to check the savage and, and determined assault. In a fierce frontal attack with the Japanese blasting his guns with grenades and mortar fire, one of Sergeant Bassett sections with its gun crew was put out of action, leaving only two men able to carry on. Moving an extra gun into position, he placed it in action, then under continual fire, repaired another and personally manned it, gallantly holding his line until replacements arrived. A little later, with ammunition critically low and the supply lines cut off, Sergeant Bassalone, at great risk of his life and in the face of continued enemy attack, battled his way through hostile lines with urgently needed shells for his gunners, thereby contributing in large measure to the virtual annihilation of the Japanese regiment. His great personal valor and courageous initiative were in keeping with the highest traditions of the U.S. Naval Service. Now, if you're familiar with the series The Pacific, you'll know a lot about Bassalone's life. He actually, after this, he was brought back to America to basically sell war bonds. You know, he was hailed as a war hero, but he hated this. He did, He wanted to be with his men, so... Eventually, his request was approved. He went back to fighting and uh, was later killed at the Battle of Iwo Jima. Again, it's something that I'm sure many of you have heard of before, but I felt that I need to mention. Anyway, back to the battle for, for Henderson Field. By the end of the night, 86 Americans were dead. However, they had killed nearly 2,200 Japanese and just as importantly, they held the line. Henderson Field was still still theirs. Meanwhile, on the 26th, the Japanese Navy had hoped to prevent the Allied Navy from interfering with the attack on Henderson Field. But because the ground attack was so delayed, the USS Enterprise had managed to arrive in the area. So Admiral Yamamoto decided that the plan now should be to attack, and attack they did. At the Naval Battle of Santa Cruz, the Japanese carrier planes managed to sink two ships, damage 11 others, and destroy 80 planes. The Japanese will lose 97 of their planes. Still, at the end of the day, Henderson Field was in the hands of the Americans. Now, come November, it could be argued that both forces were fighting an enemy just as deadly as 
the one they had been fighting, and that was disease and starvation. For the Americans, malaria had been a problem since September, but come November, it was estimated that 15% of the troops were incapacitated due to the disease. Meanwhile, the Japanese especially were low on food. In fact, while Canal earned the haunting nickname Starvation Island amongst many of the Imperial soldiers, they also suffered from the same disease ailments that plagued the Americans, if not more, due to them operating out of dense jungles on the island. But early November also saw both sides bringing in more reinforcements. This would be the cause of the next major naval battle of the Guadalcanal campaign. Technically speaking, it is the naval battle of Guadalcanal. A battle which is honestly pretty hard to describe, especially in such a short time frame. But I'm going to attempt my best shot at it. On November 12th, the Americans unloaded 5,500 men without any issues. The Japanese were 600 miles away, bringing in a force of 7,000 soldiers, accompanied by a fleet of destroyers and cruisers whose aim was to bomb Henderson Field. Hearing the Japanese imminent arrival, the American transports unloaded the remaining troops and headed out, knowing more than likely that they would come across their enemy, who would have, at this point, heavily outgunned them. That night, a vicious naval battle occurred. Despite the Americans tactically losing, the airfield had still been protected. And they were, were able to send, you know, have their reinforcements arrive on the island. But it did come at a heavy cost. And that was at least for one night. By the 14th, the cruisers that Yamamoto had sent arrived at Henderson Field. Planes from Enterprise and the CAF hurried to try and score hits, which they were quite successful at, as they were able to sink six transports, which... You know, when you think about how many men are on each transport, that's a lot of men. And they forced three others to retreat. And while all this had been going on, the American naval force, which was now commanded by Admiral Halsey, who was absolutely loved by U.S. sailors, Halsey ordered battleships to go to, of, you know, of all places, Savo Island, the first battle of Savile Island would be avenged. During this particular engagement, which was another night battle, the U.S. had lost eight vessels. However, they had also ended up sending 23 Japanese ships on a one-way ticket to Iron Bottom Sound. And largely from here, things slowed down at Guadalcanal. A few notable moments include the naval battle of Tassafaranga, that occurred on November 30th, which was another tactical victory for the Japanese, but strategic American victory, as the Japanese were unable to drop off desperately needed supplies. Come December 9th, the 1st Marine Battalion, who had been on Guadalcanal since day one, was finally relieved, and they were able to go and rest for a bit, and much, much deserved. By Christmas, the Japanese had come to realize that they might not be able to recover the island. They had lost Guadalcanal. They lost the area. See, at one point, there were 36,000 Japanese soldiers on the island. Now only 11,000 remained. On December 31st, New Year's Eve, Emperor Hirohito decided to withdraw the troops from Guadalcanal. Codenamed Operation Key, 
this withdrawal was a massive effort, and to be frank, it's incredible how successful the Japanese had been at discreetly moving their men off the island. And by February 8th, the Japanese were gone, and the Allies didn't find out about it till the next day. Uh, see, the Allies obviously wanted to close in and try to take out as many Japanese soldiers as they could, but because of Operation Key's great success, they really weren't able to do any damage. In fact, the Japanese had lost one destroyer, three others were damaged, and 600 men, although 30,000 needed extensive treatment in Operation Key. But in total, the Japanese evacuated 10,652 men from Guadalcanal, which is incredible. Still, this small victory couldn't overshadow how monumental the Allied victory at Guadalcanal was. Back home in the United States, the campaign's victory was cause for much celebration. Vandergrift, for his part, would return to America and was awarded the Medal of Honor by FDR. And the 1st Marine Division had spent months on this island, constantly fighting, facing disease and bombardments. They received the Presidential Unit Citation, which incredibly high honor. Of course, we know that the war would continue on, and many, many more battles would be fought, and many, many lives would still be lost. So the question is, what does Guadalcanal represent? In the grand scheme of the Pacific War, what does it represent? Was it the turning point in the war for the Pacific? I would argue no. Um, as far as if you had to pick one definitive turning point, I would say I think Midway probably would still hold that title. Though, for the people back home at the time, Guadalcanal felt more important. Again, um, Guadalcanal, it had, in many people's mind, the Allies were able to do the unthinkable. They were able to beat the invincible Japanese. So Guadalcanal was a huge turning point. I mean, the Japanese definitely believe so. In fact, privately, because he couldn't say it out loud, otherwise he would be tried for treason, Admiral Takagi believed that the Japanese should go ahead and attempt to broker peace. To quote General Alexander Vandergrift, he says, We struck at Guadalcanal to halt the advance of the Japanese. We did not know how strong he was, nor did we know his plans. We knew only that he was moving down the island chain, and that he had to be stopped. We were as well-trained and as well-armed as time and our peacetime experience allowed us to be. We needed combat to tell us how effective our training, our doctrines, and our weapons had been. We tested them against the enemy, and we found they worked. From the movement in 1942, the tide turned, and the Japanese never again advanced. Piggybacking off... For that, to quote Admiral Halsey, before Guadalcanal, the enemy advanced at his pleasure. After Guadalcanal, he retreated at ours. I think maybe the most telling quote, and this is how I'm going to close it off. I'm going to end this with a quote by Japanese Admiral Tanaka, which is a name that's come up multiple times in this episode. It says, Japan's doom was sealed the closing of the struggle for Guadalcanal. And there you go. That's Guadalcanal.
All right, everyone. That's Guadalcanal right there. Thank you, Drew, for doing all the research on that one. I uh, bet that's going to be a long podcast <laughs> by, the, by the time we're edited down and out. Um, Guadalcanal is one of many, many pretty unbelievable uh, battles and or campaigns in the Pacific theater during World War II. And uh, in interesting, I don't, Drew kind of piloted the ship on this one, so I, I don't quite recall if you included the uh, the naval battle that took place outside of Guadalcanal, but that remains to me one of the most interesting uh, aspects of the whole of the whole thing, and it's really almost an ancillary, like a side piece to what the Marines had going on. So, hmm. uh, really pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, I think of amazing stuff. You know what I'm thinking of? What? I'm thinking of Sonoran Desert Institute. Are you thinking of Sonoran Desert Institute and their School of Firearms Technology or even their School of Unmanned or Uncrewed Technology? Yes, Sonoran sir. Desert Institute has three programs, all of which you might find yourself interested in. So we have our Certificate in Firearms Technology Gunsmithing, our CFTG. We have our Associate of Science in Firearms Technology. And we have a uh, Certificate in Unmanned Technology or Uncrewed Technology Aerial System, C-U-T-A-S. If you hop on to sti.edu, you can see all the programs that we have. You can check out our course catalog, as we mentioned before. Something to add. Um, if you hop onto the news tab at sti.edu and you look on the right after hitting the news tab, you'll see categories for our blog. And there's grad features there. And those are going to be stories of our graduates and, and what SDI was like for them and how it impacted them. And uh, they're going to tell you a lot more about, uh, about what life is like uh, in this space than ever we could or what that experience is like. So I strongly encourage you to hop on to sdi.edu, hit the news tab, and then look at grad features. All right. Now, before we get out of here, uh, we would like to touch on one more tale from the range. What do we got? So we actually got two, Ooh. but they're both short. Uh, I, I realize this episode's gone on pretty long, so not want to take up too much of your time but they're similar stories so i thought it might make sense to group them together both of these come from snipershide.com and this first one is by a user named krang uh that's a krang with a c says was on a rifle range with lots and lots of shooters making no small amount of noise and a deer walked out and insisted on standing right in front of everyone's targets they called the range cold and it just didn't want to leave literally standing at that exact spot bullets were impacting the darwin award isn't just for humans i'd say that's almost a power move um yeah and i thought oh that's kind of weird like i guess that would probably happen happens more often than you think um because faronth shared a similar story one weekend in yes one weekend in uh the year 2000 i was at a range with my buddy something we did with some regularity before marriage and children took care of all that free time. Anyway, it was a busy summer day and the line was full. Break was called and everyone did whatever they did to their targets. And I made it go and had made it back to the shooting line. Just as the range was about to go hot, a rabbit hopped right onto the range and started working its way across the whole range perpendicular to the firing line. The range master came on the speakers and in perfect pitch, monotone slow voice said don't even think about it Oof. which i 
<laughs> Wish I had a recording of that range master. We all had a good laugh at that one. And so there we go. Animal Kingdom. Just be careful where you're prancing. Yeah, man. All right, everyone. Well, we think that we have held your tension wrapped, enthralled for long enough. Uh, for now, that is going to be the gun wreck. We will see you at a similar time in a similar place next week. Have fun out there, and we will see you on the range. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.